Hello and welcome to our second Pensions and Protection podcast episode in association with Royal London. I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager at Money Marketing. And today we're continuing the series by discussing some of the challenges the consumer duty has presented regarding fair value in the investment landscape. And we'll look at what active management and expert governance can do to offer value for customers. Hello and welcome. Today I'm joined by Ken Scott, Head of Investment Solutions at Royal London and Hiroki Hashimoto, Fund Manager from Royal London Asset Management. Thank you both for joining me today, Ken Hiroki. You're welcome. Um, So uh, if we can start with you, Ken, can you give us a bit of a background into yourself and um, your role at Royal London? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Ken Scott. As you said, I head up the investment solutions team at Royal London. So my team and I work on the mutual side of the organisation and we're responsible for the unit linked investment products that underpin all of Royal London's um, pension propositions. OK, fantastic. And uh, could you do the same, Hiroki? Sure. Hi, Sam Hiroki Hashimoto, fund manager in the multi-asset team at the Royal London Asset Management. And we are a team of 14. We have about 18 years of average experience, and we look after the customer assets, including the government range and the sister range of multi-asset portfolios like the GMAX. Okay, fantastic. So a wealth of experience here, uh, and I'm glad to have you both with me. Um, So to start off, um, in this consumer duty world, advisors face a new challenge in demonstrating the value of their products and services. We've heard that constantly. How do they show that value? Um, So can you shed some light on this challenge and highlight how advisors can meet this requirement, Ken? Sure. Thanks, Kim. Um, so, so you're absolutely spot on that consumer duty brings fresh challenges for advisors. Mm-hmm. Maybe just before we get into that, it's worth sparing a thought for the broader challenges that advisors are facing today. Yeah. So, so, so markets have been volatile over the last few years, and particularly so over the last eighteen months. You know, mm-hmm. the, the war in Ukraine, for example, and the resulting impacts on, on global supply chains that were only really just recovering from COVID has driven bouts of market volatility and rising inflation. Mm-hmm. So reactions to this from central banks and governments have pushed interest rates up, and that in turn has changed the relative attractiveness of the different investments out there. Um, and that's really challenged some of the beliefs long held, you know, since pensions freedoms that drawdown really is the, d- the default accumulation solution. Mm-hmm. So it's with a backdrop of this new economic paradigm um, that, that um, is meaning that the advice given today is maybe not always for the products that advisors are most familiar with, that consumer duty has come into effect and really raised the bar on that advice process. Mm-hmm. So I suppose now maybe getting into your actual question then. Um, yeah. One of the biggest challenges I think facing advisors um, with consumer duty is really how they demonstrate um, the value that the products and services they offer to customers um, is giving. Um mm-hmm and how customers receive good outcomes from those products. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, I don't think anyone's in any doubt that advisors were and remain really client-focused with an unwavering focus on delivering good value. But the duty really requires all those decisions now to be evidenced. And in that respect, I guess consumer duty, um, or, or my belief is that um, it's more, more of the effort for advisors is about um, the transparency of good decision-making and evidencing that rather than the need to implement mm-hmm. lots of new processes. Yeah. So I so I guess maybe in terms of meeting those requirements, <clears throat> a couple of things I would I would call out. I think that both packaged products 
and multi-asset investment solutions can really help advisors demonstrate the value of the products and the services that they supply. And obviously demonstrating the value of the products and services and how they align with clients' needs and preferences is, of course, fundamental to what consumer duty is all about. So if I just take maybe each of those briefly, um, and then I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> package products um, means that you know one provider is taking responsibility for the customer administration, the service, and the investment. Mm-hmm. And not only does a fragmented approach to ownership of those different parts of the customer value chain make it harder for advisors to evidence the quality of the cumulative outcome, mm-hmm. but I think more importantly, a package product will squarely place the accountability for delivering an aggregate customer income in one place. And that ownership itself should really drive delivery of better customer outcomes. Right. And then just finally, the last point I was going to make then was a multi-asset solutions. And I'm sure mm-hmm. Hiroki will talk more eloquently about some of this stuff. Yeah. But, but I think um, um, multi-asset solutions do provide better outcomes because of the financial resilience that the device diversification within them really enables. When we think about customer needs and preferences and all that good stuff in the customer and consumer duty, we think about understanding attitudes to risk. We think about understanding where people are in their life stage, their dependence, their affluence levels, their ESG preferences and so on. And multi-asset solutions offer a range of efficient investment portfolios that really cater for that wide variety of choices. Yeah, fantastic. And jumping off of um, what Ken was talking about with multi-asset investing, Hiroki, does good value for multi-asset investing mean low-cost passively managed tracker funds? (laughs) Uh, Thanks for the question, Kim. Actually, we do get this question a lot, but no is the obvious answer uh, in in that sense, because obviously cost is very important. Um, Ken's touched on the consumer duty side. But we actually believe that there's no such thing as passive in multi-asset anyway, because Mm -hmm. the choice of which asset class you include in your portfolio is an active decision by itself. So, for example, if you did choose a low-cost tracker fund, let's call it 60-40 balance fund that invests just in equities and bonds, then you've just decided actively or maybe not actively to restrict your asset class universe to just bonds and equities. Now, Ken touched on earlier about how we've all seen in recent periods where bonds and equities can sell off very aggressively at the same time when we have inflation problem that requires central bank sizing their policy aggressively. Mm-hmm. So you need much more broad diversification than that and include inflation hedges like commodities to improve resilience against certain shocks. So to us, um, to answer your question, Good value for multi-asset is a proposition that embeds active broad diversification, but also sensible active strategies trying to add value and manage risk appropriately. All obviously has to be delivered in a cost-effective way. Um, before we move on, though, I do want to make one more point, which is that um, why this is very important right now, because inflation have started to fall, have fallen from very high levels. Yeah. But it, doesn't, but it doesn't mean, though, that we're going back to the previous strategy low inflation environment, because as Ken touched on, since COVID, there's been lots of structural changes in the markets and in um, workplace, everything. So, for example, mm-hmm. when it comes to markets, we're talking about things like increasing geopolitical risk and deglobalization trend. And that resulted in things like what we call onshoring or friendshoring or production capacity. And that means it's quite inflationary because it's not necessarily improving your productivity. And similarly, we are all trying to have this important fight to tackle climate change, but it has a near-term cost associated 
or it being under investing in traditional energy sources and that cost supply when you need it. And that's why when we had the Russia invade Ukraine, we had a spike in oil prices. Those spikes come more regularly. And in terms of workplace, we are seeing uh, changes in terms of labor markets. So people are retiring early. And that's reducing supply of labor, which means we're now seeing transfer power back to the employees again, who can now demand wage increases. And we've seen the strikes obviously in this country. Um, and that cost then has to get passed on somewhere. And that creates this inflationary spiral because you have to again ask for further wage increases. All these things are inflationary. And in fact, um, Head of our team, Trevor Greetham, is calling this phenomenon spikeflation, which is a regime characterized by periodic spikes in inflation, and also that creates much shorter business cycle. So again, we're just emphasizing that in that environment, you need broad diversification, just equities and bonds to improve resilience against shock, but also an active strategy is trying to adjust exposures as economic and market and business cycle level up. Right. And you mentioned active management, which is important, but I would like to know a bit more about what Royal London's approach to that is. Sure. Thanks, Kim. Yeah. Um, in terms of active management, we embed it at three levels. Um, the main one is the active approach to diversification that we touched on earlier. Mm-hmm. And actually, we're quite unique in Royal London because we have People like Ken, the actuaries, and his team who has the custom insight and working with our team who have the investment knowledge to come up and review this SAA within a robust governance framework. That's actually quite unique in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And that ensures, obviously, as Ken touched on, that we meet a variety of customer needs, like, for example, trying to make sure your portfolio grows over long time above inflation. But you also mm-hmm. try to incorporate changes to investment backdrop. And that's very important to make sure that the proposition remain fit for purpose over time. Now, just going a bit further to that, we say not only we actively choose to include asset classes to improve resilience at various shots, we have to review this quite regularly. Now, we talked about commodities to help you against inflation shocks earlier. We also include real assets like commercial property alongside equities for diversification. Now, one another often overlooked asset is government bonds because the right. traditional so, traditional approach that uses um sort of markovitz type optimization techniques to find efficient portfolio for example using moody's tools will in, not include them because corporate bonds have similar characteristic what we call high correlation with government bonds but they have higher potential for return so Optimization, when you push the button, will dump all your assets to corporate bonds when it comes to fixed income exposures. And that is very undiversified. And we all know from experience that correlation is not static, and corporate bonds and government bonds behave very differently when it comes to credit default shocks. So, again, it's working with the um, team who knows about customers, but also working with people like us to make sure we understand investment to know that you can't just push button, you have to have. Um, um, expertise there. So what we're saying here is that um, we are using these tools like Moody's as a screening tool where we're looking for portfolio that are close to the efficient frontier, but incorporate things like more resilience, different shocks, and making sure that uh, it's taking current valuation into account of the market. So for example, we tend to hold less in long duration bonds when the yields are low. And then in the recent SAA change we've made, we've 
shifted away from cash towards bonds. Mm-hmm. That's the one, one of the examples where we try to be more active when it comes to diversification rather than just buy and forget. And similarly, on the second level is once you decided what your strategic mix should be, we then tilt the exposures between and within the other classes to add return, but also to reduce risk. And that investment strategy uh, is backed by what we call intuitive factors or good investment trade, mm-hmm. something that our team have researched and tested in different economic and market conditions. And I want to give two examples. Um, one of them is what we call investment clock. And that links the asset class performance with four stages of business cycle. And that's characterized by what's happening in terms of growth and inflation. So, for example, when growth is picking up while inflation is still falling, we call this a recovery phase. And that's usually a good time to invest in equities. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when growth is falling, but inflation is rising, then equities tend to do poorly. And that's something what we call stagflation, something we ex- experienced in, uh, last year or so. So what we try to do is we use our own lead and trend indicators for growth and inflation, and we try and cast where we think we are in a business cycle, and we're just exposed accordingly. Mm-hmm. Another example, I was going to, uh, there's got a few more actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, keep going, please. Yeah, great. Um, another example I was going to give is the investor sentiment, which is effectively implementing what Warren Buffett says in the past, which is be greedy when others are fearful. Now, right. It's, it's very difficult. Sounds uh, counterproductive. It is, isn't it? I mean, emotionally, to stay invested while markets are going down and you're seeing red on the screen and you get panic clients calling, it's quite difficult as it is already. And it really feels awful to be buying. But actually, that is usually the right thing to do, which is something we've tested over many mm-hmm. decades. Much. Um, and what we are aiming to do basically is trying to remove these behavioral biases against sort of human nature that's and to help us make the decisions. And, and what we the team does is we use these factors or the models which we update on a daily basis. We meet to discuss economic and market development to make sure that positions in terms of funds are in the right place at all times. But that's mm-hmm. what we do in terms of making sure once you decide your strategic allocation, tilting exposures between the asset classes. And the third way I'd like to talk about, and I'm coming into maybe <laughs> over time a bit. Anyway, the third no, okay. way <laughs> we are active when it comes to how we access each asset class. And we blend both active and passive exposures in terms of security selection. Mm-hmm. Um, we use actively managed funds that are internally managed by Royal London. And that's very important because it means that we have better understanding of funds because we have direct access to the underlying fund managers because we are the teams all sit in one location or one floor in fact and we also exchange ideas when it comes to the weekly meetings etc we also have full visibility of their holdings when it comes to systems which means that we can actually include their holdings when it comes to risk management purposes as well and that's mm-hmm. quite important and lastly, um, it also means we keep our cost to minimum. But right. With, but within passive, though, we have done a lot of good work. For example, we've evolved our equity in the trucker funds to better integrate ESG factors, but without changing the risk return characteristics that we need. So they're now, for example, tilting 
to exposure to reduce carbon by 10 to 30 percent by region and that to help us achieve the net zero initiative and and we mainly use passive though to also access exposure not available in your house like commodities but it also allows us to implement that tactical changes in a timely but efficient and low-cost way and before we hand you back or should i stop <laughs> onto my yeah. last point, which is um our responsible investment team on our behalf actively engage with the companies that we invest in to influence their corporate behavior on our behalf to well, better future. So actually, we are very much active from start to finish. Right. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for that very detailed account, Hiroki. I think it will yeah, be very useful. Yeah, apologies. Yeah, I'd love talking about what goes under the bonnet. No, no, it's place. definitely useful because I don't think a lot of advisors, uh, a lot of our audience would be aware of how much goes into it and how um, how well thought out the whole process is. Um, but I did want to kind of go back to Ken. Um, for for my final question. Um, So back to the opening point about consumer duty, how can Royal London's tools and services help advisors demonstrate value? I mean, there is a lot there as Hiroki just evidenced. Yeah, great question, uh, Kim. And I won't I won't go back over everything that Hiroki said. Um, Maybe just starting with the point that, you know, Royal London's we, we fundamentally believe in the value that advice can add to customer outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that means that we would love to support a market where, um, you know, customers could get, more customers could get access to to advice. And in turn, that means that a lot of the tools and services that we offer are really there with the intention of either helping to reduce risk or reduce costs in advisors' businesses. So, so, so doing those things well not only complements advisors' own services to clients to drive even better outcomes, but also hopefully frees up advisors to focus on their value add and potentially to serve a wider range of clients. Mm-hmm. So taking maybe a couple of examples, some of the tools and services um, that we have. Um, so, some are value add in their own right. So, for example, we have a, a drawdown governance service, and that really helps advisors to understand when a client is off track relative to the original plan in terms of income sustainability when they're taking drawdown. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got other tools, you know, like our, our client review service, where parts of that are really there to h- highlight events or actions to advisors that maybe triggers for them to have the value-add conversations with their clients. Now, these are just a couple of examples. There's obviously a host of other tools that advisors may, may know that we have. So our scheme governance reports, for example, or the attitude to risk questionnaires that we have. Um, but moving on from the tools, I think another value add that, that, that we offer is the governance that we have around our investment proposition. So Hiroki talked loads about all the great stuff that we do internally. But alongside that, we've got an independent committee that we call the IAC that is really there to challenge us on the design and management of our governed range. Now, all workplace providers, as I'm sure you'll know, and and this includes Royal London, have got IGCs now, um, but the role of the IAC has a sole focus on investment. And so it's really there to ensure that that critical element of the proposition remains as robust as possible. And that committee there is there with a deep understanding of not only the investments and the markets that we operate in, but also the needs and the preferences of the customers that we're here to serve. Right. A couple of other things I'd maybe mention then. So one is um, the, the really strong teams that we have. So we've got a really strong team of business development managers and service and consultants. So we have, I mean, we have one of the largest 
pensions field forces right across the UK. And they're there to support advisors in using our products and our services in the best ways possible for their clients. And our servicing teams are also there to support advisors and they've got a rich set of data behind the scenes to help them help advisors identify growth opportunities for existing clients. And that servicing team now has 14 years running of five-star service from the Financial Service Awards. And then, yeah, I said one last thing. So the last thing I was going to mention was the technical and regulatory insights that we offer. Now, these are all available on our um, advisor hub, the Technical Central website. And there's a range of insights there on all sorts of issues. So you'll have some things that might affect many of an advisor's customers, you know, inheritance tax or state benefit issues. Or you'll maybe have some less common topics that might not affect all of an advisor's clients, you know, things like lifetime allowances or rules around splitting pension assets and divorce. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but we've got a CPD hub that sits there as well. So advisors have got that double whammy of access to all this insight and the ability to bank CPD at the same time. Fantastic. Well, thank you for speaking with me today. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and I think our audience will definitely gain a lot more insight into what you do and how that can help them in displaying that fair value piece of uh, the consumer duty. Brilliant. Thanks, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for listening to our second episode of the Pensions and Protection podcast series in association with Royal London. We do hope that you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll discuss the importance of offering value for money and explore how to keep the goal of building financial resilience front of mind for customers. And if you'd like further information or resources from Royal London, just visit advisor.royallondon.com slash peoplepowered.